Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 81. Today in the show, we're joined by one of the top taxidermists in Michigan, Dan Weeks, and we're grilling him about everything that we hunters have ever wanted to know from our taxidermists. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today in the show, we're discussing the topic of taxidermy and everything that we hunters need to know about it to ensure that we can preserve the memory of our hunts and the animals we've killed in the best way possible. So joining us to cover this topic is one of the top taxidermists in Michigan, my personal taxidermist and friend, Dan Weeks of Nature's Pride Taxidermy. But Before we get Dan on the phone and dive into that topic, as we do every week, to the dismay of some and the delight of others, (laughs) we need to catch up with my trusty co-host, Dan Johnson. So, Dan, what news news do you bring from Iowa? Well, I want to take a moment and talk about Syrian refugees for a second. Oh, wow. We're going there? (laughs) Yikes. It's just a funny story. My, My town is 900 people, okay? And, huh. and I don't just mean in the town. That's 900 people with my town's address, okay? And that includes the farming communities all, all around it within miles, right? Okay. Huh. So the governor of Iowa says, no Syrian refugees in the state of Iowa. My next-door neighbor slash mayor of <laughs> like this bleeding liberal, right? He says, he says, we will. Swisher welcomes all Syrian refugees. <laughs> my town, my town is just exploding with like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like, where are you going to put them in your house? It's just like, it is hilarious just to listen to people. Like, it's one of those things where it's like, our, the person who our town elected did not speak for the people, if that makes sense. Right. Not you very know? representative right. of your uh, population. Exactly. And it's just, it is just hilarious. Like all the people who are talking like, what are you thinking? I don't know that. I just thought it was 
thought it was funny. So there's people like trying to find no vacancy signs and putting them up around town. And it's... Oh my gosh, I, I wouldn't think of central Iowa being a hotbed for a big political debate like this. <laughs> right, right. It's, uh, it, it's, it's funny. It's funny, but, uh, hunting. Whitetails. Yeah. Yeah. Other, other than our major political things going on in right. the world, whitetails, you've been out hunting, right? What's going on? You, last time we talked, you were afraid I was going to jinx you. Did right. I jinx you? You kind of did, but I guess, you know, my season's pretty much over. Like I'm, I'm I hate, not gonna... I hate when you say that you say that there's still a month and a week left of the season. Right. More. Right. Hey Mark, how many kids do you have? I know that's your card you're going to play, but well, come on. Well, it's not on. necessarily just that, but I've spent a lot of time hunting. I, I mean, not a lot, but I, yeah, I, okay. For a guy with two kids and two podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the kicker. There's the kicker. <laughs> I I haven't hunted near as much as I usually do, but we're going to skip all that, right? Yeah. So historically in all my properties, once the shotgun season starts and finishes – it's very hard to find a mature buck. And if you do find one, he's not coming out till way after dark. Right. And that's, that's a typical story throughout wherever you hunt. Right. So, and I think I told you recently, I got my buddy's, my buddy's place, 15 acres of some of the best bedding ground I've ever seen. It's so thick and nasty deer just kind of appear out of there. Right. Yeah. So let's see this weekend, Friday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night, I got to hunt. I didn't get to hunt any of the mornings. My daughter's fighting a ear and eye infection, and my son's got something in his throat. So I've been having to stay up late and help watch the kids. And, and then in the afternoon, they seem to feel a little better after their naps, and then I get to go out. So that buck I missed, right? I saw him. I, I did a run and gun Friday night, and I set up, and I saw I saw the big buck the buck I missed and another shooter come from a, from a different angle past where I, where I was at. And I, so I saw three shooters Friday night. Jeez. I saw two shooters Saturday night and Sunday night. I saw the big boy again. So I saw the big boy three nights in a row, but wow. here's, here's the kicker. My buddy's property, there's there's a cornfield, right? This guy has a cornfield planted, and it's for hunting, but I think he only gun hunts. So the first night, uh, he came through on Friday night, literally 20 minutes after I finished setting up, so like 4 o'clock. He comes strolling through, and I grunted at him, and he, he it looked like he was going to come towards me, and then he dropped down in this creek, and then he t went up towards the corn. Um, and then I saw another buck chasing does in, in this field, the next shooter. And then the third shooter, I rattled, I blind rattled, you know, throwing Hail Marys and he came out and no, wait, I did see him. And then I rattled at him and he came within 10 yards of me. I drew back on him and he needed to come 10 more yards and he stopped and then he turned around and went in a different direction. Ugh. That's brutal. So he, he was probably a 150 class nine pointer. He was oh, big. Stuck. He was pretty big. And then the other one was a little mass, like this eight pointer with split brows and just a ton of mass. Oh, he ha he awesome. has one of the biggest necks I've ever seen. And then the other big, you know, 170 class buck. And this is like the best 15 acre property in the world. It sounds like. <laughs> right. So this, th this property is holding a ton of deer, almost too many deer. 
I don't know if you've ever been hunting in a situation yes. where there's too many deer and they, they bust you all uh-huh. the time. I can 100% relate to that in Michigan on one of my properties here. Right. So, so my buddy's 15 acres does not butt directly up against this cornfield. If it did, I would have had shots at every one of these mature deer. So there is, think of my buddy's property as a rectangle. All right. And then a square to the left of this rectangle is another property owner. Well, this property owner owns a strip that comes off the top right corner of the square and borders like 60 yards, like a, a strip, just 60 yards across the n- north border of my buddy's property. Okay. So he and, owns a square and then a 60 yard rectangle thin strip on the north real thin, border. Okay. Real thin, like 60 yards. That's Almost it. Almost like an easement? Uh, it's not an easement, but it is literally, it's a, it's a crick bed basically. And then on the north side of that is this cornfield. Gotcha. So I can't hunt that crick. And that's where every one of these deers were coming out of this, um, coming th- right along this crick, uh, you know, back and forth between the cornfield property and the, the crick property. And I am as far as I possibly can go on my buddy's property without jumping a fence. And it is so frustrating because, you know, and the good thing is I'm learning about this property. So next year I can be in the right spot. Right. Have you, I know you're, sounds like you're out of time, but have you thought about trying to decoy ever? Do you think that would ever work in this situation to pull them the little extra distance? I, I have thought about that, but it's so thick in there that a, they may not see it because I'm up high and they're down low. So gotcha. I would have to have it right on the, like on the crest. And then the other, the other problem is if anything's coming up from the top, it, and, you know, I've already talked about this too, that the, the swirling winds, right, and it, right. I mean, the winds go north and south, north and south, like a teeter totter. They're just boom, boom or a swing. They go back and forth. It's, it's, and then I finally found a, a place where the deer, the deer feel comfortable walking through my scent stream at a certain distance. So they're not crossing in this really, really big, thick part because it's literally too thick to cross. So they're going around it which is away from me, but then circling back down to where I have the wind advantage again, if that makes sense. Right. So it's, uh, the, I tell you what, I'm not done hunting. I am going to get after shotgun season, maybe two, maybe three sets in trying to catch them come from the bed to the cornfield. I'll give it a week after shotgun season. So yep. the area can settle down and then throw in some evening hunts to try to find that spot right between the, bedding area and the food source and that's that's really my only hope uh right now so now what about uh the other properties you picked up permission on close to your house does that do those have any late because i know your your traditional property you've mentioned the past is pretty tough for the late season and now this one you've got some options but the other one where you got that one big buck on camera that you saw in the field is there any late season opportunity there the the other guy is a gun hunter um and you know I hunted it early season a couple times and I did not see hardly, and, and it had awesome bedding too, but I didn't see any deer working their way through there. I didn't see any sign. So I just kind of left it alone. I didn't, I don't have enough trail cameras to cover all of my properties. So there's two, the, the two properties, um, the one where I shot the doe and couldn't find her, uh, that's a different property. And I, I hunted there twice 
and and I saw a couple does and one young buck and that was it. And then I, you know, I focused my attention on my main farm. And then once my buddy got this and I saw the, the three shooters on trail camera, it's like, what are you going to do? It's no brainer. Yeah. So your buddy's property, how far away is that from your house? Uh, it's like five miles. Oh, so that do you, are you ever going to be able to get out of work? You know, at the usual time and sneak out some weekdays? Uh, yeah. On Wednesdays, um, is when my wife has the day off and she can, uh, uh, she watches the kids. So then I, I could probably get out to hunt on Wednesdays and maybe, maybe on the weekends just depends on, you know, what we have going on as far as holidays. I have a big family, which means not all Christmas and Thanksgiving events take place on Christmas and Thanksgiving. So, you know, you got a weekend here or a Saturday here and you know, I'm going to try to get out and I will, but, uh, it's just one of those things where it's, it just gets, you know, the deer movement becomes less and with all the big family stuff, it just becomes, it just becomes, you know, and it's tough. Yeah. And that's how I have it set up. I want to spend as much time in the timber during the rut and during the the absolutely best parts of the year, knowing that I probably won't get a, I probably won't get a hunt as much late season. Well, I'm bummed for you, man. It's all right. I mean, this isn't the first time I've ever eaten my buck tag, and it's not over yet. Knock nope. on wood. Yep. But I, this isn't the first time, and it's not going to be the last time. So, I do hope you get hope you can get back out there, and like you like we've talked about, you never know. One of those nights, even though chances aren't as good as they were maybe a week or two ago, it still can happen. So, right. especially and note, good find the bedding if you can still find great bedding, and you can get in between that bedding and a um, a food source. I mean, even with the snow on the ground and it's going to melt here, but when, you know, there's going to be more snow coming in the year, it's pretty easy to find a main trail coming to a food source, throw a trail camera on that, wait a couple days, go back and check it. And if you see a mature buck or any deer that you want to shoot coming through that area, if you don't move it to another trail or, you know, Oh man, this is what I want. You go and you set up and you just, you go in, you don't sit I'd never sit on a food on the field edge this on late season because more than like you know most times these deer are going to be entering after dark or after yeah after the sun goes down so whatever yeah so that's well, what I do I got what some, about you I got some ideas Iowa. yeah I got some ideas to share about late season hunting but I'll save that for next week next um week. but yeah I am going back to Iowa I'm like 98% sure um, I'm probably going to leave this Sunday okay. and hunt as many days as I can handle until shotgun season. Um, so I could be out there Sunday through Friday, um, but I don't know. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how stuff's happening back at home and work and all that kind of stuff and see what I can swing. I'm not sure yet, but I'm going to go and give it one more try before shotgun season. I don't have the highest of hopes just because I know there's a lot of guys out there that I'm sure have been hunting hard the last month you know, since I was there last, but, right. uh, I'm going to give it a shot. You never can know. You, can you get a shotgun tag? No, no. Okay. No. My, uh, when you draw a non-resident, it's just for one or the other. Gotcha. And gotcha. so I've got, I've just got the archer tag. So we'll see. Hopefully I'll have some kind of story or something to share next week and, uh, we'll go from there. But well, I, I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know what to expect, but I guess we'll find out. 
So we'll find we'll find out later. We will find out later. We'll find out later. That said, though, uh, we do now need to stop our jabbering because our guest is waiting for us, Dan. Um, and we've got two Dans on this show. So how about from here on out, I'm going to call you Dallas. Is that cool? That's fine. All right, perfect. Uh, well, then I'd say let's pause briefly for a word from our partners, and then we'll get Dan on the phone. So, like I mentioned, we need to take a second now to thank our sponsors of this podcast, Sitka Gear. And today I wanted to continue the discussion we started last week with Sitka Customer Service Associate Corey Pearsall. And specifically, I want to hear now about how Sitka handles warranty issues. So, Corey, what happens with warranties at Sitka Gear? Yeah, so warranties, we try to be as proactive as we can. So we always motivate or, you know, advise you if you have any concerns whatsoever something that's just out of the norm you know something that is out of your control that fails for a product just call us you know we'll walk you through it see what we can do what happened whether it's a repair whether it's a replacement um in regards to you know fun warranties i know it's never fun for that individual when they have a warranty issue but for us it's always about making sure that you're taken care of And, you know, we're totally open to any suggestions that you have in order to make sure that you're ready for whatever experience that you have coming up, any hunt, et cetera. So a lot of times guys won't identify a warranty until they're putting everything together, you know, just getting ready for the hunt, which then limits, you know, the time that we have in order to get a replacement to you if we need to. So even if it's one of those situations where you need it and we know we can repair it, it's more important for us to make sure you have the right product at the right time. And so, you know, a lot of times I've had, you know, a situation where I'm like, well, I can't get it to you in time, but on your travel, if you can stop at a retail location, grab it off the shelf, I'll pay for it with the retail associate over the phone, easy as that, and you're good to go on the way. So we really keep an open mind and and try to work with you to resolve any kind of situation that we can. So there you have it, and uh, I can attest to this warranty policy myself. I actually had an issue with a piece of gear a couple years ago. I gave them a call, and just a few days later, boom, without any hassle, I had a new set of rain gear coming my way. So pretty cool stuff. If you'd like to learn more about Sika Gear, visit SikaGear.com. And now, let's get Dan Weeks on the phone. All right, with us now on the phone is Dan Weeks of Nature's Pride Taxidermy. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on here. And uh, like I said earlier, it's a, definitely an honor to be asked to, to be part of your podcast. So yeah. look forward to it. Absolutely. Why, why are you laughing, Dallas? You don't think, that's, you don't think it's an honor to be on the show? Well, that's, that's the first time I've ever said it. It's, it's such an honor to be on this show. Like, you know what? Well, well, you know, do you know who I am? Yeah. It's not, if you met me in real life, it's not an honor. He's definitely not referring to you, Dallas. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, so, so, Dan, you've, you know, you've listened to the podcast. You know who we are. But for everyone yep. who's listening who doesn't know who you are, could you give us a, a brief introduction about you know, who you are, what you're currently doing, you know, related to taxidermy, and maybe how you got into it? Yes, for sure. Yep, yep. Again, my name is Dan Weeks, and we are in Jackson County, Michigan. The name of um, our business, and it's just it's me and my wife Emily, and uh, our business is Nature's Pride Taxidermy. She, I've been doing taxidermy since about '93. Um, my wife 
started in about 2001, so together we've um, had quite a few years doing it. We do have some outside help a little bit uh, now and then, but uh, and our main thing is we really got started with the whitetails. Jackson County, we're kind of an area down here where it's traditionally been some of the trophy areas for whitetails, so, and obviously that's getting better every year too, but whitetails are our main thing, but we do a lot of African here too, a lot of African mounts, a lot of bears, um, a lot of different exotics. So we're fortunate enough to, to get to work from pretty much all over the United States. And so you meet all different types of people in, in this business. And, again, we're fortunate for that, too. So, But uh, that's the main thing. Whitetails, obviously, right now we're, um, we're knee-deep in whitetails, and it's right in the peak of the season. So that's about everything that's on my mind right now has to do with whitetails. We're hunters, too. So not only we're out here with the whitetails every day and all the hunters talking deer hunting that uh, you go to bed and you think about where you're going to go the next day and uh, if you get time to get out to hunt you know so it's uh, but that's kind of a, a, a wrapped up version of um, what we do and who we are and it's it's pretty much all family that helps us out here too so we, we take pride in that so yeah, you guys have got a great operation there and uh, I personally you know obviously you know this Dan but uh, you are my personal taxidermist too and I've always been really happy with the work you've done and I got to say, it's a lot of fun whenever I have a deer to drop off. I just get a kick out of knowing I'm going to stop by the shop and get to hear the stories of what's coming in and who shot what and how things are looking. Uh, that's pretty fun. So I'm curious how, you know, you mentioned the fact you're knee-deep in whitetails right now. How have things been looking? You know, gun season here in Michigan opened just over a week ago. What's uh, what's happening? What's coming in? Well, you know, I would say overall this is probably the busiest we've ever been um, this quick for uh for the whitetail season the bow season was a real strong bow season it was pretty steady it wasn't all like a lot of times the rut hits you know or that the, gets real busy right around halloween but it's been real steady this year even early season um and we but as far as the the gun season here in michigan it's been just absolutely crazy uh, the quality of the deer is way up i think for, as far as what we've been taking into the shop the age of the bucks is way up it used to be back in like the, the 90s, you know, you'd look at what we had to mount, and I would say 80% of the deer back then were year-and-a-half olds, and then you'd be excited to see a two-and-a-half, and then, you know, one out of every probably 60 deer was um, a three-and-a-half or a four-and-a-half. You know, that was a real big deal. And now I would say we've maybe got three or four year-and-a-half-old bucks, um, and they're usually, you know, younger kids. Uh, Michigan's lowered the age for that, so there's a lot of young kids hunting now and uh so if you get a younger buck it's usually the younger kids or it's somebody that just started hunting and they might be 60 years old and they just got their first deer and it's a you know it's a year and a half old three point or four point or five point they're just as proud of it but the quality bucks is definitely here in michigan way way up and um i see that every year it's a great trend to see you hear a lot of people thinking saying and talking about well you know we're doing it my neighbor's not and i think that such a high percentage of the people are doing it now that um, I'm really seeing a big difference, at least in the ta- in our tax derma studio. So, which is it's nice to see, you know, it's really good to see that. So, we've been extremely busy uh, this last week. So, like I said, it's nice to take a break and um, uh, not uh, not have to be skinning <laughs> every second, which right. is about what <laughs> all we've done since starting Monday, I think. So, so here's a question I'm kind of curious about. You know, I, what I imagine life of a taxidermist i think of some of the things you mentioned a couple minutes ago like how great it is to your life is you know whitetails night and morning you know you're either working on them or you're actually out hunting or you're dreaming about them but 
do you actually get to hunt all that much, or are you stuck just dealing with all the deer that everybody else hunted? <laughs> is there a downside? A, yeah, uh, no, there is, but it's a great question. But uh, I, I, me and my wife both love to be in the woods enough that we can my, we can kind of jockey things where at least one of us is out. Um, I, I'm more so me than her. When gun season starts, she kind of quits hunting. But the bow season is probably when we get most of our time to be in the woods. So we try to get as much earlier in the season as we can because it does, as busy as it gets, it's just you can't let things go. So like as far as gun season this year, I think I probably got maybe six or seven hours uh, of sitting time. Um, and my wife, I think she went opening day, and she just went sat up in the camper back in the woods. So it was more of a relaxing thing for her. So yeah, no, there is a downside to it when it comes to that. But the up the upside is, is there's so much more upside to being a taxidermist and getting to see all the great bucks that are out there and talk to the people and hear their stories. And so you almost feel like uh, you're you're living it anyway, whether you're in the tree stand or not. So. It's, uh, I, I wouldn't trade it as much as I love to hunt. I wouldn't trade the, the part of not having, uh, not being able to go out in the tree once in a while or go out and sit, uh, in change in trade for being here in the shop. So yeah, yeah that, uh, I think some people would have a hard time handling that, that really like to hunt, but, uh, you know, I still think we get out as much as, um, probably more than people would think. Has anybody ever brought in a deer that you were hunting? Oh yes, <laughs> oh yes, that's a hard one. And then, and usually when they do, I get them mounted right away, and then I don't call them for a while. That way, I can pretend like it's mine on the wall. So, <laughs> no, I've had that happen. It's nice. uh, it's usually a neighbor, you know. And actually, that's a to me that's a good thing too, because then you know where the animal went, and yeah, you get to sure. see it and up close and personal. And so it's uh, you know, the, I think the first time that happened, it was a it was like a little bit devastating, but at the same time you get used to it, you know what I mean? And, and you see it with everybody else, too. There was a guy in here yesterday, and I, I know Mark's from Hillsdale County, where he lives and hunts, and I, I don't take a lot of Hillsdale County bucks in, but I had one unique, very nice rack sitting there on the, on the shelf, and a guy brought in a buck for his, girl, or his, his wife, and he started telling me about this deer that he was obsessed with and uh, really trying hard to, to, to get a shot at, and he's seen him all summer and all fall, and said he disappeared at the end of October and he's getting the picture out and he turned around and the rack is sitting right behind him on my shelf oh, no. and he <laughs> just about the look on his face it was it's kind of sad to see how <laughs> how devastated he was and I mean what are the chances of you know the one rack I have from Hillsdale or maybe I've got a half a dozen from Hillsdale County and um happened to be the deer that he was kind of obsessed with trying to get a crack at so you wow. you see it you see that quite often actually I uh I got a, a buddy of mine that was out hunting in Iowa with me a few weeks ago, and he had another friend of his was hunting the same property he was on. So um, my buddy had killed a buck, but he was still trying to shoot a doe the next day, and he was out there with his other friend on this property, and that friend had this big eight-pointer that he'd been after all year, you know, had tons of pictures of him, and was kind of obsessing about him, was really excited to get an opportunity, and he just checked cameras and saw, you know, that he was on there recently again, so like, him and Cor- my buddy Corey were walking up to, uh, back to the trucks, and they're talking about, you know, where do you think I should sit to hunt this buck, you know, I wonder if he's going to come through tonight, all this kind of stuff, and as they're doing that, a pickup truck drives by with another hunter that hunts the same property down a section or two from them and they get to talking and he's like oh yeah i shot a nice buck yesterday morning and they're like oh let's see the pictures and 
boom, it's the one buck that that guy and the friend oh, had been no. obsessing about too. So it's just, man, I think it's tough to handle. I know uh, from what I hear, you know, that was a bummer for him, of course. So for sure, it's, it's oh yeah, it. I've seen it a lot. It's uh, it's hard to deal with it. You get such a personal connection with these animals. You know what I mean? Like oh, yeah. you get the pictures of them and you name them and you. You just you try to outthink them, and then somebody. And a lot of times, it's not always, but you see a lot of times, it ends up being somebody who maybe hunts one day a year, you know. And they, right. <laughs> they, they, uh, they have two acres, and they go out and sit down, and and boom, there's there's this buck, you know. And that's just kind of the way it goes. It's it's part of what you. Get, I guess we gotta get used to, hard to get used to, but as, as deer hunters, you know. And I get to see it more in here because you, a lot of people will call me and say, hey, you know, there's. This is where I hunt. Have you had anything described like this take brought in, you know? And it, it kind of makes, it relieves them a little bit to know they're not, because they're, if, if they don't know about it, they're out still hunting this animal right. and can't figure out where he's at. And so I, uh, it's one of the things we just see quite often, actually. Yeah, that, that's one of the kind of love-hate things of trail cameras. That I think trail cameras have really... The, have really brought this to a forefront, the fact that you can get to know these deer so much by pictures and you mm-hmm. kind of feel like it's, quote-unquote, your deer, at least the deer you're hunting. Yep. Um, it becomes really exciting, but also especially devastating when it ends up getting shot, too, if it's not you. So, oh, yeah. yes, yep, yep. So, so, Dan, most of what I want to talk about today is related to things that hunters need to be thinking about when it comes to taxidermy and what they need to be doing to make sure they get, you know, the animal from the field to the taxidermist right and a bunch of stuff like that. But before that, I, I want to ask one question for maybe a smaller segment of our audience, but for those people that are actually interested in doing what you do, you know, as we just talked about some of the benefits mm-hmm. of being a taxidermist and stuff like that, you know, for someone who wants to be a taxidermist someday, real quick, you know, how, how can someone go about getting into that? I was fortunate because I had graduated from college and I was big into trapping and I was trapping fox on a farmer's property and he was a taxidermist. And he was to the point where he was still doing a little bit, but he was kind of looking for someone to mentor and to bring in and he went well he wanted to learn a bit, little bit about trapping so i got fortunate he came out on the trap line with me and he invited me to come in and learn a little bit about taxidermy and it just it, you know just boomed from there so i was fortunate in that way and that can a lot of times that does happen somebody gets somebody to mentor them um but i more often than not i think nowadays people that are really seriously interested will take courses they have courses that they offer in different states. I know Pennsylvania, Iowa, Wisconsin all have courses, even in Michigan. And they take that and then they have to get specimens of their own and start working on them and trying to get better. And you can watch YouTube videos and you can, you, back in the day it was, you know, VHS cassettes you could rent and watch and uh, DVDs. But I think a lot of the people that are real serious about it will take the classes. And I think in, I've had people you know, that have come to me and want me to try and teach. And is we're at the point now where we're so busy trying to get the work done ourselves. It's hard. I've had um, interns from colleges come in and work with us. And, you know, it's, 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 it, they're great people. And, you, you know, we're learning with them as much as they're learning from us. But it's really tough for a lot of taxidermists that are busy, that are busy trying to get the work done and make a living at it. So it's hard to tell people no, you know, but like I, like I said, I got lucky at a, it was an older guy that, uh, you know, he did it because, you know, was in love with what he did and just kind of got a little bit tired, you know, and then he started doing it big again with me. And so that's, that's how it works. 
you know, but you still have to, um, you have to be so diligent in, in getting your own specimens and you're going to, you know, you're going to do some stuff that doesn't look so great and that's how you get better and do start doing work for friends and you got to like the, you know, the, the getting dirty and getting bloody and uh, long hours. You know, you say that about long, I say it about long hours and it's not always any business. You got to put a lot of time and self-discipline, but like you were asking about me deer hunting and it's, we're out here till 11 o'clock at night, almost every single night working and we're working Saturdays and Sundays this time of year, you know, so you, you give up things too, to, to, to be able to do the things you want. So yeah, the classes I think are probably the biggest way for someone to get started, Mark. Yeah, well, that's that's good to know. I know there's I get occasional emails from people, you know, curious about that type of thing. So that's that's good that you know there are some resources out there for people interested. So, there is, yes, yep. And if they looked online, I know there's three or four real big uh, schools that offer it, and um, it doesn't always, you know, the more money you pay, the better um, education you're going to get. I know people that have paid a lot of money and never to you know to take the classes and not really um come out of it being able to do much with taxidermy so you still got to do a lot on your own you know so it all depends on how how much they want to get into it so here's a here's something i was kind of thinking about as you say this you know there's there's a class for um sounds like there's some classes to learn about taxidermy and stuff Mm -hmm. and so i imagine there's some basic processes that you go through and kind of a you know one two three four basic steps you go through is is taxidermy like an assembly line type thing or is it an art you know is it something that requires some innate talent artistry to it or is it something that you can basically follow a step-by-step instruction and anyone can do it i think both um i do i mean when you when you're doing a lot of animals when you're you know doing a lot of shoulder mounts or a lot of life size you've got to kind of treat it um like the assembly line thing meaning instead of just doing a deer one day and then a fish the next day and a you know a kudu the next day um for me to be efficient i try to do deer certain times of the year and then i'll take a break and maybe do a bunch of african animals you know what i mean so it's it's you kind of switch over they're like different gears even with emily with the turkeys she'll uh, she'll quit and just she likes to set aside a certain two or three months just to do turkeys and 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 something like that i mean it really does take an artistic flair i think you can mount an animal and have it presentable but if you don't have that artistic um extra flair or artistic uh eye it's you know there's a big difference there really is especially as you you do more and more and get better and better at it so uh, you know you can see the difference too you can see people who um just do it just to get a few done every and the people who really have the artistic flair and another thing with like tax Jeremy, you can never think you're as good as you can get and you never think that you're the best because there's always someone who has different ideas and uh, different ways of doing things so you always for us we always we go to the shows we always try to get better and and have an open mind to different ways of you know whether it's airbrushing a deer or putting together a turkey or any of that um you, you know there's always new things and and new ways and uh for the industry so which you know at this day and age we're fortunate because and 30 years ago you didn't have many resources just you know there's magazines now that are dedicated just to taxidermy art um so any like with building bases you've seen some of the stuff we do in here with building bases and that's that's where you really start getting to put together your your ideas and your creativity and and it's nice to have more than one person's eye for that too you know those two of us work together and we can take constructive criticism and usually we can take (laughs) 
constructive criticism amongst each other, you know. So that part helps. Yeah, well, that's cool. I, I uh, the art side of taxidermy has always like intrigued me, and maybe it's what I appreciate the most when you know you can you know kind of like you said, you, I think you can tell when a piece of taxidermy is done by someone who really pays attention to the details and the little things and taking it to that next level versus the person who just kind of ships them out the door. And, yep, um, yep. you know, personally, I've always found, and, and, and really why, you know, one of the reasons I keep working with you is because I've always seen that attention to detail. The little things, the little tiny attention to detail just mm-hmm. makes the that really special thing so much more special. And, you know, these mounts, these animals represent, you know, such such passionate memories and experiences and things like that that it's it's so nice to be able to see it represented so lifelike and with such a such attention to detail and care put into it that and I appreciate that kind of thing. Um, while we're on while we're talking about this once I I was I, I'm not sure if you know Joe Meter or not. He's uh, yeah, yep, he, yep yep he lives close to me and um, I was talking with him a couple years back and he had a, he took a flashlight out. Right. And he yep. was, he's pointing it in all like the nose and on the eyes and, and showing me, cause when I look at it from, from a wall, I look at a mount and I go, Whoa, that's really good. Or that looks cool. Or that looks cool. But I don't know what the specific details are. What makes a taxidermist as far as details are concerned, average or great? Well, for details, I think, like like you're talking about, looking into the nose and looking at the septum and seeing the, the, the right coloration, the right shape. And a lot of hunters would, would not appreciate that. But like for us, we try, I mean, that's one of the things you try to get better at every year. But also, I'll, you try to do the same amount of detail for every single deer. And I know Mark appreciates that. He sees the, the detail he's talking about. But you might have the next nine guys that, you know, they, they really don't care. A lot of guys just want a big neck, you know what I mean? Or, yeah. and, and that's another thing that you can only do so much with. You can only make a deer, you know what I'm saying? It, as big or small as it was, but the, the detail too with the eyes, I think that's the biggest thing for the expression that you're trying to get for the animal. You know, you always ask the hunter, well, how do you remember it? Or how do you want to remember it? Do you want it like it's alert looking at you? And then you change the eyes as you change the ears, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it sounds simple, but it's, and it actually is simple when you do it a lot. But you have to change the expression according to how they want it. They want it to be relaxed or looking alert. And but I think the eyes, the the detail on the eyes, even the whiskers. Um, if you use a tannery that does a really good job of tanning, you get all the. You know, every deer has a different amount of whiskers. You might have an early season buck that has such pronounced uh, whiskers coming out of its no its nostrils and the sides of its muzzle and down underneath its chin. And then we actually put like a little bit of a. It's, it's a little bit of a, like an epoxy that, that clings to the whiskers, and it shows like they're breathing and their breath is freezing to their whiskers. And I think some people notice that and some people don't, but that's kind of little details. Even making sure the hide is the hair side of the deer is just so clean. You know, I mean, you see someone that are still dusty. And so little things like that, even like with life-size animals, you see some bases that are just a rock, and then you see some that, you, you know, you try to do the spring habitat if it was a spring animal or the fall habitat. And I think them are the little details that, you know, and you could go on and on and on for each species of animal. But um, the details that my wife puts on her heads, Emily does on the turkey heads, it's amazing to see um, the expression she can get just by changing the color on the turkey heads, you know. So, and like I said, not everybody notices that, and not everybody um, knows, a, you know, good detail from, no detail at all, but a few 
hunters that are that are seasoned in it really can tell and they appreciate that and that's what you know that's why you got to count you have to do it for all the mounts and that's what whether that's what people you know the hunters end up appreciating too about it yeah the uh the whisker thing you mentioned with a little bit of glisten to it i've always mm-hmm. i've always noticed that on my mounts and, and just thought it looks really cool um, yep, so yep. people do so notice that that's... i appreciate that one so the other yeah, go oh, ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, the Dan. other thing I know, Dan, with Dan's question, I mean, sometimes you'll see a deer that's some guys with like a, a big turn in it instead of like a 20 degree turn, they'll do like a 45 or 70 degree turn, and then you do some some muscle detail and wrinkles um, in the neck where it's turned, and even some shoulder muscles. And some in the early season deer, you try to do the you'll watch you look at a live deer in early season that short hair, and with African animals too, and you see the the, the jaw muscles and even the, the veins that go through the face. Um, that you know, up around the rostrum and that, and even the veins in the ears. That's one of the things you can show with a shorter hair. The animals that um, that with longer hair, and if you do, it kind of is overdone. But uh, you know, you've, I'm sure Dan, you've had some mounts done, and you've been able to see the difference. Because uh, I know Joe Meter, we've ta- I've taken actually some uh, seminars of his, so I know he's about as good as they get at that. Yeah, I've heard good things about about him as well. So I want to take a step back now into the woods. Um, you know, this is something I think a lot of guys maybe haven't heard about. Maybe just a buddy told them, we'll do this, and that's what they do. But maybe haven't heard from an actual taxidermist. So for a guy or girl who just shot a deer, let's, let's assume it's a buck, just shot this buck, has now recovered it. What does this hunter need to think about, you know, in detail, what are all the things he or she needs to think about to get that deer from on the ground right now to you or whoever their taxidermist is in the best shape possible? What do they need to be thinking about? How do they need to be gutting it, cleaning it, transporting it to make sure they can get the best mount possible? Yep. You know, the, the, I would say for um, most hunters, they know how to properly, you know, uh, clean and gut a deer um, and field dress it. The biggest mistake I see is people cutting up too far on the brisket. Usually, as far as you can go with your knife where the, the brisket bone stops, that's the best place to stop, and you can still properly field dress it at that point. Um, for a shoulder mount, you, you can still remove the testicles. A lot of the guys that want life-size mounts, um, we've done a lot of life-size mounts with no testicles attached, um, and, you know, we, we work with that, but usually try to leave those attached for a life-size mount. But the other thing is you have to think about the weather. Obviously, if it's, if it's really warm, um, you've got to get it either to the tax trimmers. We cape a lot of deer. We have a lot of people, especially this last week, with it being warm. Um, a lot of hunters are afraid that a meat processor isn't going to correctly uh, cape their deer. And, and 99% of all the, meat, the professional meat processors do a, a very good job of caping their deer. But you can never take it to a meat processor, have them cape it, and just leave it there and think it's going to be taken care of properly until you come get it. I've had guys take them. Uh, to a meat processor, leave them there, and then it gets set in just a cooler for two weeks, and then they bring it back, and it's 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 dried out, and it's starting to sour, and the hair starting to pull out. So always be diligent about either waiting for it to get caped, or taking it to a taxidermist um, that will cape it for you. We don't charge anything to do that, and it, that way it's done correctly. Um, a lot of hunters will try to cape the deer themselves, and the biggest mistake we see there, and I give them a lot of credit trying to do it themselves but the biggest mistake is not necessarily leaving the cape too short but not doing it properly around the front legs um and that's another thing that you you look online there's there's diagrams that are drawn that show you how to do it and the best way to do that is to cut it off just above the knees 
um, between the knee and the, the brisket, and then sock your arm the leg back through. And then it's done properly, and then the taxidermist can make the cut. And never let your deer set. Once you've got a cake, you know, if it's, if it's 40 degrees or less, you can let them hang for a while. If it's much warmer than that, um, they actually stay better hanging than they do if you cape them and then throw them in a ball in the corner, which I have people do too, you know, hunters that bring them in, they've been sitting in a ball. Even if it's cold, the ears are the first thing to dry out, uh, and that makes it tough. The other thing is to try and get it, once you get it caped, get it right into a freezer if you can't get to the taxidermist. And if you do freeze the head, because usually you still have the whole head uh, with the cape attached, it's best to at least triple bag it. And, again, the biggest thing is is the nose and the ears um, that get freezer burnt. Um, you know, it'll sit for properly. If it's properly bagged, you can actually probably put a deer head into a freezer for a year. If it's much more in a year, unless it's, you know, wrapped in a, a, a three or four bags and then maybe some towels on the outside to help insulate it, then you're going to start getting the freezer burned. But, and you can get, getting blood all over the, a lot of you get excited, you get the deer down and you've covered it and you're gutting it and you're getting blood on the, the hide and everything and on the horns. That doesn't hurt anything. That when it goes through the tanning process, they get so perfectly cleaned up that you, you never notice anything like that. The other thing that we have a, once in a while come up that uh, makes it tough to do a, a perfect mount is when they think they have to slit the throat to, to kill it, to put it out of its misery. You can, that's one of the, the total no-nos is to take a knife and try. Number one, it's dangerous, but uh, the, the other thing is you almost always, because it cuts so much hair and it's on part of the mount that's going to show, you almost never can get it properly repaired after that. So. Um, that's another one of the no-nos. We see a little bit of everything, but the biggest thing is just to watch the weather and, and get it taken care of as soon as you can, um, you know, depending on what, what the, you know, the, the, the temperature is outside. And another bad thing is to, you don't want to get them wet. You don't want to stick them in a cooler with ice and then let the ice melt because the water breeds bacteria so much quicker than if it's dry. So yeah, that's another thing not to do is to not get it on ice and then let it get wet or to, to, to spray the whole thing out and then let it hang for a while because, that's again, it breeds bacteria really quick. Do you, do you ever get people that try to completely skin it out themselves, like, you know, cape the actual skull and all that? Is that something that you have, you know, people trying to do and, and messing up for you, or is that something that most people don't even try? A few people do, and usually that's somebody that's gone out west or they're at a, you know, like a, you see it more with elk. Um, and sometimes antelope and sometimes western deer, but not very often. Not many people, unless they've, you know, they've worked for a taxidermist or helped a taxidermist before, not many people will try to skin it off the head. Outfitters will, and usually they do a good job. Another thing I've seen hunters do is, well, I can't get it to a taxidermist, so they, they take the head, they flip it open, the cape, and then they pour a bunch of salt on it. And that's really bad, too, because it'll, it'll help keep the hair set into the hide but the whole rest of the animal, meaning the head and the neck where the meat is, that's going to start spoiling. And then it makes it tougher for the taxidermist to, to properly clean the hide off once there's all that meat and fat stuck to the hide. And then you've got this salt drying it out, and it, it's really tough to, even with adult, like a flat hide, a lot of guys like to have, they might shoot a big a, a buck that's maybe not mountable, or a big doe, or it's their, their child's first animal, they want to have the hide tan. They'll just leave, they'll salt it and then let it dry, and that's a, that's that's one of the things that shouldn't be done. That it, it should be treated just like a shoulder mount. You need to roll it up with the skin side in, and then put it in a bag and two or three bags and freeze it if you can't get it to a taxidermist. Same with a coyote or a fox or any life-size animal. They green up so quick in the belly that 
you know, a lot of hunters now in Michigan are shooting coyotes and they want to do something with them and they let them sit for two or three days and, and then you've got, you know, you start losing hair on the belly because of that. That's one of the things that needs to get in the freezer right away. And a lot of guys don't have the freezer room, so that's when you need to, to get a hold of the taxidermist right away. Yeah, so so something that I just thought of when you were mentioning, you know, people going out west. Um, I had this question when I was heading out west. Well, me and, me and Dan slash Dallas were talking about going to do an early season mule deer hunt. And I started mm-hmm. wondering, you know, what if I shot a buck in velvet? And there's yep. a lot of states now where guys can whitetail hunt bucks that are still in velvet. How do you go about handling that? How do you preserve that if you shoot a buck in velvet to get it back to the taxidermist in good form? A deer in the velvet is, that's a touchy subject. You really have to, you have about 24 hours or less, again, depending on the weather, to do something with that. Because using the velvet, they're still really full of blood. And the earlier in the season, the more blood they're going to have in their in their antlers and in their veins. But I ran into that once, and I had just started doing taxidermy. I was maybe a year into it, and we had shot a, uh, my brother had shot a mule deer in the velvet. Well, all we had was a little syringe from his bee sting kit because he was allergic to bees, and we had salt, and we were in a wilderness area. So what we did is we cooked some water, boiled up some water, saturated it with salt, let it cool, took the syringe, and then started injecting. You can feel the veins. You can start injecting them from the tips. And it pushes the salt water, displaces the blood, and it comes out of the main veins that go up through the pedicle of the, the antler. And that was back in, I think, 94, 95, and now we've got it's still sitting here in my trophy room and never lost a single piece of It's just perfect. And so it, the timing was right, though. We did it right away. We did it probably started on it within three or four hours of when the animal was dead. The other option is to get it on dry ice. Get it as quickly as you can on dry ice. Put the dry ice on top of the antlers, um, put maybe a, a, a towel or something in, or a rag between them so it doesn't stick to the antlers. You, you're more than likely going to have to split the skull plate in that case, put them both down in a cooler and then get some dry ice. Or if you have access to a freezer, if you know somebody or even the, the meat processor in the closest town, um, usually you can give them 20 or 30 bucks and let you freeze the whole set of antlers right in there. What we do now is we, we have a freeze dryer that we use, and what we'll do is split the skull plate freeze the antlers and then we can overnight them uh or we have one freeze drives close enough that we drive halfway and meet them drive two or three hours and they drive two or three hours we meet them get it to them and then they put it in the freeze dryer and that's worked out really well so then there's there's antler uh there's uh velvet kits that you can buy you can ask your taxidermist to get one for you and they can send it with you and kind of teach you the basics of just it's a syringe and there's an antler tan or velvet tan Formaldehyde is one of the old ways of doing it. So there is more than one way to do it, but the biggest thing is it's got to be done quickly. It's got to be done at the very least within 24 hours. You see it with caribou where guys will inject, say, 80% of the antlers. Well, the other 20% is going to come off for sure, and it's going to look bad. And it, it almost looks worse than if you just peeled it all off, you know what I mean? So and it, it, sometimes you shoot an animal, whether it's a caribou or a mule deer or a whitetail in the velvet, and if it's that point where it's starting to shed on its own, it's really hard to uh, make it permanent at that point. So that's when you would need to take them, put them in cold water or some salt water and let them set, and then you can peel. What the, the salt water does is soak the blood right out of the actual antler, and you can peel all the velvet off and then peel and then set, set it back in the water, and that, that cold salt water will actually suck, that, uh, suck the moisture and the blood right out of the actual antler itself so it doesn't stain 
you know, you end up getting the, the red stain everywhere if you don't do that from the blood. Wow. Well, uh, so. I guess I'm kind of glad I didn't shoot one in velvet because it sounds like <laughs> I would have probably screwed it up. <laughs> it, it's really hard. We've had uh, deer from Kansas. You know, that's one of the states you can go early muzzleload and they have the velvet. And it, it, they'll take it to a deer processor and say, well, you know, be careful. And then when they get it back, um, three-quarters of the velvet's been marred up and because they're so tender that the antlers are at that point. So they really got to be handled carefully. So it's hard. They do have a spray on velvets you can send in and have them, um, an artificial velvet put on the, the animals, hmm. on the antlers. But to me, it just it is never as realistic looking as the um, the actual animal in the velvet. And they're they're a gorgeous mount if you can if you can do it right, you know. And it's, it takes a lot of research ahead of time and planning and preparation if you plan on um, harvesting an animal that does have velvet. So it takes the right type of person and personality to be able to do that on your own as a hunter, you know, especially if you're up in a wilderness area or somewhere where you don't have someone else to help you out with it. Yeah, that seems pretty darn difficult. Uh, <laughs> so so moving on in the process then, let's say taking taking a step back to what we were talking about just before velvet, you know, properly handling your deer in the field to get it to the taxidermist. Uh, this might be a tricky one for you, given the fact that you are a taxidermist, but do you have any advice for the person who doesn't have, you know, a set taxidermist already? You know, they, maybe this is their first deer, and they don't have a buddy that says just go here. Um, is there any, you know, advice in, you know, how to make sure that the taxidermist I pick is, you know, legit or half decent or anything like that? You're right. That is kind of tough. I've never, honestly, ever been to another taxidermist studio except for the, the um, Ray Dawson who taught me taxidermy, and so. Um, I guess I've never thought about how to go about getting a hold of another tax service. Some, I think some people, you know, will, our work is 100% word of mouth. All of our customers come word of mouth. So that's how it works for us because there's always a buddy that says, well, you know, one guy, one hunter might call four, buddy, four friends that hunt and three out of the four say go here. So that, you know, obviously they're going to try that place out. But I would actually probably, if it was me, I would go to the studio and look at uh, some of the mounts they have and, and look and make sure it's something, you know, even if you've never had one done, I think you can kind of tell first impression. Um, it, one of the good questions to ask is turnaround time. Um, it, it, do they have the hides professionally tanned? We always send ours out to be professionally tanned, and I think that's really important. Some guys don't. Some guys do it on their own. They tan the, there's quick tans and powder tans and, and um, soap tans that they can use. And, you know, a lot of these mounts are their heirlooms. They'll, they'll last forever if they're taken care of and tanned properly. So I guess I would ask those questions and then look at look at the mounts that they have, you know, and see it, you may, it may look good to you now, and then you get more seasoned at it, and you've had three or four done, and you may see different, you know, qualities that you do and don't like of other taxidermists. But, yeah, you know, they start, a lot of guys start in the phone book. If they don't have friends that hunt, that's probably the first place they look or at websites. You know, look at a website and see some of the work that's on the website. Maybe call, uh, well, I guess, I don't even know if he would have references for something like that. You know, call the taxidermist and ask for a reference. Obviously, he would give you a, a number to someone who's happy, so <laughs> that <laughs> right. wouldn't do you a whole lot of good. But I don't know, Mark. I mean, your first mount, did you, is, you probably went with um, some of your friend's recommendations, right? Is that how you did it? Yeah, yeah, for me, yep. it was it was word of mouth, just, you know, hearing from different people about who they trusted and, and I imagine that's probably, like you said, how 99% of people do find their taxidermist. Yep, yep. So it would be tough. I mean, if you don't have any knowledge of it and other friends that have done it and know 
which way to steer you, I guess that's the biggest thing is to ask the questions of price is obviously a factor in a lot of people's decision. Some people don't. They just want the best job done that they can. Some people want the cheapest job they can have done, you know, um, and they don't care about turnaround time. So you got to take, I think, all that in consideration and then also be able to look at their mounts and make sure, you know, it's tanned and uh, professionally tanned. That All that makes a big difference. Dan, do you take do you take on all work, or do you ever refer someone to another taxidermist? We, for what we specialize in, you know, like with bears and deer and African animals, we we've never had to get to the point where we've had to say no. Um, we've had with fish, we totally quit doing fish. Um, there's years where we do say no to like the small animals, the coyotes and the fox and the raccoons and. Um, this year's a year where we're going to pretty much stop taking in the small animals for a while. We just can't, you know, you can't handle it all. And it's just, it's me and Emily, I, that do 99% of everything. At this time of year, we have, uh, a sister and a brother and a couple brother-in-laws that come help us that really helps out with the skinning end of it and that. But, you know, so yeah, we've never had to get to the point where with like with white-tailed deer and African animals and uh, exotics that we've had to say no. But you have to pick some things. And like I said, this year, even with the turkeys, Emily will have her limit. She will take in usually 15 turkeys, and then she's done. That's it. She won't take any more. So people don't like you to tell them no, and they don't like to hear no, so that's a hard thing to do sometimes. But we do refer, even with waterfowl, um, you know, the, the, the ducks and the geese and that and the pheasants, we quit doing any of that too because you just – you can only do so much. That, I mean, that's you know. Does that answer your question, Dan? Like that? It does. Yep, yep. It's um, you know, some years. This year, we could get to that point with deer. We've taken in wow. way more than we normally do at this point of the season, and it may slow down. You know, who knows what's going to bring muzzleloading? But this year's been the first year for us that we've actually had to freeze a few hides as we're taking them off the head, partly because it was warm early in the in the gun season. But uh, it's it's you know. We're, how many we do you do point. in a year? How many do we do? Um, you typically on a normal year around the 175 for deer, you know, like shoulder mounts. And then um, last year we were a little over 200, and we're definitely going to be over 200 this year. We're probably going to be, you know, two 250. Um, and if we hit that, that's when we're going to have to start saying no, because that's about what we can can physically handle, <laughs> mentally and physically handle. Um, but the thing I've noticed over the years is sometimes you have a lot of guys going bear hunting and you take in more bears than normal and you do a lot of life-size mounts and then you may have a few less white tails um, or you may have a lot of white tails and a lot of African animals because you know you might get two hunters to go to Africa and they'll bring back 20 or 30 animals so it doesn't take a lot of hunters to really start building up you know your, your African mounts and then you may have less bears you may only get a couple or three two or three bears so it always seems to work itself out. The one thing for us is we've always had like an eight-month turnaround or less. Bull bucks, you know, bull animals that are shot during bow season, we may get them done in three months because the tannery's not totally full. And um, we were up the tannery today, actually, and uh, we've got hides that we've already picking up from the youth hunt. So we're going to have them done for Christmas for people, for the kids, you know, all the, the young kids that shot deer. So um, it, it just, you know, it depends on every year, but... Uh, yeah, so normally this most years are right around that 175 to 200 deer. So I know we're going to be 
way above that this year. <laughs> so, so I'm a little worried, Dan, because I'm heading to Iowa next Sunday. Hopefully, still gonna fill my Iowa tag. Am I gonna oh, get? Yeah. Am I gonna get turned down if I bring it over? No, 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 no! Oh, I won't do that, Mark. Special treatment now. <laughs> <laughs> no, that'd be a bad thing. No, I don't think heart. we're going to get to that point with whitetails where we have to. Like I said, we're going to start telling. I quit doing coyotes, coyotes uh, skinning them years ago because we got so busy. Well, then Emily started taking over the, the skinning, and she enjoys it. But it's to the point now where uh, we've got so much other to do that you know you gotta you gotta pick something that you have to say no to and. Like I said, it's hard to tell a customer no, especially we have a lot of loyal customers. And so if it was a new person, it'd be a lot easier than telling, uh, you know, one of your loyal customers that brings their friends out here and they're here every year with something to tell them, no, we can't do it. So your other option, I guess, is to hire somebody or get a little longer lag time, you know, so that that may end up happening. But we're still, I think a lot of taxidermists I hear are, you know, a year, sometimes two years on, on turnaround. And we always try to keep it that 10 month or less, unless it's something like, like the coyotes. When people bring them in, I always say, you know, it's going to be, it may be six months and it may be a year, but that's just, you know, if you want that done, that's one of the things you have to wait a little bit longer for. All right. Now, before we get to our next question for Dan, we do need to pause for a word from one of our sponsors of this podcast episode, Ozonics. And today we're going to hear from another Ozonics user, Bill McCall of Full Draw Adventures, as he discusses how Ozonics has changed the kind of success he's seen as a deer hunter. Since I learned how to use Ozonics effectively, you know, being conscientious of every factor, just like any other thing you do when you're hunting, as you do it, you learn more about it, you learn how to be more effective. Uh, Being conscientious of my unit being over my head directly, uh, you know, using the extension bar that's offered by Ozonics, uh, being conscientious of wind by using wind checkers at all times, multiple times during your hunt uh, to make sure that the wind doesn't shift on you. Um, on average, I get a, get away with 70% of all my downwind encounters from the worst case scenario to the best case scenario, and that's from one-year-old deer to seven- or eight-year-old deer. Um, which is phenomenal, you know, in, in my opinion. Um, and I never harvested two mature deer a year with a bow and arrow uh, until I started using Ozonics. Interestingly, this was my first year I've ever killed two bucks with my bow, too. And I'm confident that my Ozonics helped, at least in part, to make that possible, as I had deer downwind of me during both encounters, and none of them spooked. So, if you're interested in learning more about Ozonics, visit ozonicshunting.com. And now, back to the show. So, continuing down the down the line now, kind of, I keep on bouncing back to this kind of progression that I'm thinking through. Um, mm-hmm. We've got our taxidermist picked out now. We show up at the taxidermist studio, and again, thinking here, I, I don't know anything. Let's say, do you have any advice for picking the right form? the right mount for your deer, you know, assuming that you want to do a shoulder mount, um, you know, I think most people probably just show up and look around and say, I like that. But yep. do you have any advice for how to you know, pick the right one? Or is there a certain form or style that looks best for a big deer versus a small deer or a Iowa deer versus a Michigan or anything like that? Any like high level tips you can give for picking the right form? Oh yeah. I, I try to do that with everybody that walks in the door and you've got a, a few guys will come in and they've been through it several times so they know exactly what they want and how they want it turned and how they want the ears and uh, the expression on the animal 
and I do. I have a lot of there's for the there's certain big-bodied mature deer like the Iowa deer and the Illinois deer, Kansas deer, and some of our Michigan deer that I have certain forms and certain sculptors that have sculpted the forms, like the Joe Meter. I like Joe Meter's form, and another one's Ben Meter's, and those are my two favorite sculptors. And when you shoot a big mature deer, I always try to talk them into using one of those two forms of, from those sculptors. And and I know which forms over the years using them all I think is going to make that deer look better for, to show off what you want to show off. It's a smaller body deer or younger deer. There's another sculptor that I use that shows it off better for the, you know, the smaller body, more uh, kind of petite looking deer. Um, even southern deer, you know, you got certain forms for that. But the other thing I ask them is, do you want it to look like it was when you, you know, you, when you shot the animal, you harvested the animal, you last saw the animal, or do you have a spot? A lot of guys will draw a diagram of where they're going to put it. Like this is my wall, and this is where I sit, or this is the entry into the room. So we try to pick them out that fits perfect for the wall you're going to put it on. And then how high are you going to hang it or how, how, how low is the, the, the mount going to hang? Um, you know what I mean? So it, like there's certain mounts that look great if you're going to hang them eight foot or lower, and then there's certain mounts that, and that same mount might, may not work very good if you hang it too high. So we try to go over that with all the guys. And the other thing is, is, is asking them how they want their ears for the expression. A lot of hunters have had mounts done and they've never really had a say in how they've done the ears which changes the expression so much and so i make suggestions with that too and then they get to in in our studio they get to look at god there's all i think there's always probably 50 or 60 shoulder mounts in here or 40 at every any given time so they can look at what catches their eye and tell me you know this is what i think i want to do and then i say well how high you're going to hang it you may lose the face if it's too high you know so that's a great question, Mark, because a lot of hunters just say, I want a shoulder mount, and they just think that you're just going to do a shoulder mount. But when we're all done, I think they get con- some of them get confused at first, but then they start putting it all together, and then uh, once in a while I'll say, why don't you go home, talk to your wife, figure out where you're going to put the animal, and then give me a call back, or they'll come back out. You know, They'll come get their antlers to show off during the, the, the holidays, and then they had time to settle down and think about how they want to do their mount. So that way they're not you know, pressured into... I had a buck with a 23-inch spread brought in today, the guy's first buck. Wow. It was just a gorgeous, big, heavy, five- or six-year-old eight-point. And he was, he'd never had one done. And, you know, was, he, I went through everything with him, and he did that. He's like, you know, and I bring my wife out. He took pictures, and he said, I'm going to leave the deer here, and then I'll come back at the antlers, and we'll pick out a mount then. So that way you can see the pressure building up on them, thinking <laughs> they've got it. If they make a choice, it's it's done for the rest of their life, and it's not. I mean, you know, we don't order forms until the hides are back from the tanner. So you've got, you know, you've got a few months to, to sit down and decide. A lot of guys just say, this is how I want it, I know how I want it, and this is what we're going to do. You mentioned the ears. Um, yep. And the ears are something that you've talked to me about before when I brought in my, my deer. Can you share your perspective? Because I know in the past you've given me your opinion on a certain way of ears looks pretty good. Some ears kind of hide the antlers, different things like that. Can you just share with us your thoughts on different ear position and, and why that makes a big deal? Yeah, I think it does make a huge difference on the animal. A lot of guys, you see every mount they have, have alert ears. And that's just how they like it, like the style of the ears for. And the alert ears are... Whitetails have they have different sizes of ears. You see some that it could be a mature buck and it has pretty small ears, and you can see year and a half old deer sometimes that have really large ears. And those ears, in my opinion, if they're set too forward on certain mounts, and it depends on how the antlers come off of the skull plate, but you can kind of hide the antlers sometimes with the ears if you don't do it 
um, a certain way. And so, like with my personal opinion, all my own white tails, and a lot of guys leave it up to me. And if they leave it up to me I, and I do it on my own, I almost always do the ears a little bit back, gives them a relaxed look, or I'll do one ear back and then the other ear a little bit forward, and I'll switch it depending on which way it's turned. Um, and that gives it, it's amazing how the different expressions you can change just with moving ears around. Um, you know, and, that, and I think that's probably one of the most important things on a mount is how you set the ears. And like I said, a lot of guys just say, well, every deer I have, I want alert ears. Some guys leave it up to me. Um, if you have two main beams that come out, if you look at the main beams, a lot of times they're not symmetrical. They're, they almost look like they come from two different deer. Well, that really shows, if you can see that unbalanced look if you do the ears both the exact same. So a lot of times we'll switch the ears up and give it kind of a, a natural, like it's listening behind it with one ear and listening forward with the other ear, and then you don't notice the unsymmetry in the rack as much. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways of playing with them and making them look different. Sometimes we'll set the ears, and then we'll come back a day later, and it's it's not, you know, it takes a while for them to dry. And me and my wife, Emily, will sit there and look at them, and I'll move them a little bit, and she'll say, no, yes, no, you know, until we get it exactly how we really like the expression, how what it does for the deer. So it does make a big difference. Yeah, yeah, I've noticed the same thing. It's it's something that I would have never thought about ahead of time, but mm-hmm. once you mentioned it to me and I started looking at all the different deer and the different ear positions, it, it's stark. It really does it, make a total difference in the look and feel of it completely. It does, yes. And like I said, you see some hunters that really get confused with that, but then they look around and they see deer with every different position that I have mounted, and then they can kind of say, well, I really like this. And everybody's got their own style, you know. It's, it's amazing how... Um, certain guys like one thing and don't like another, you know. So that's why it's, I like to ask everybody. That way they're, they know what, exactly what they're getting. Yeah. I know the, the last deer that I had mounted, I, I rattled and rattled and snort wheezed him in. So when he came in, he was doing that sidestep kind of thing with his ears pinned all the way back. Oh, yeah. And that's how I got him mounted with the ears cool. pinned back pretty far. And uh, my taxidermist at the time showed me how, you know, at the very tip, they, the, ears actually curl back a little bit and plus with the ears pinned back it makes your rack look bigger so that's yep, also that's also a benefit it is yes in the ears they do make the, the rack look bigger some a lot of guys don't like them pinned back unless they're doing that aggressive posturing thing like you just described um i you look at a lot of my mounts and I haven't shot a lot of, like, giant bucks, so I have to pin the ears back to make my antlers look big. (laughs) Hey, I've seen some pretty nice ones you've gotten, Dan. Yeah. (laughs) Um, That's funny. Uh, So here's here's kind of my final question related to, you know, dealing with an animal I'm bringing in. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, actually, it's kind of after bringing it in. I've picked it up. I brought it home. What do I need to be thinking about, or what does anyone need to be thinking about to properly care for a mount once it's at home? Because that's something I don't hear a lot of people talking about. You know, is there anything that we should be doing to make sure it lasts as long as possible and is of good as form and uh, shape as possible? Oh, yeah. I mean, you see a lot of mounts that look really good on the wall. You go into other people's houses or trophy rooms, and then you, once, you, once you get a mount down and you realize it's just like any piece of furniture or a picture or anything hanging on your walls, everybody's house gets dusty and dust is you won't believe how dirty your mounts can get until you clean them off and they they'll still look good even if you don't clean them and then you clean them and you're like oh my gosh that you can't believe just a little bit of dusting how much it brings them back to life but what i try to tell everybody when they there's the two main things that you want to clean are the antlers which we always tell people to use mineral oil which is a simple oil that you buy at a pharmacy that you can consume you can drink it 
we always tell them take a rag, a small rag, soak it with mineral oil until the rag is, you know, not where it's dripping, but it's soaked in. Put it in a little Ziploc baggie and keep it, and it'll keep forever. Just use that to wipe the antlers down. You, it's not going to hurt to get that on the hair side of the animal, but for the hair, we like to go to, we get livestock grooming polishes like Shoshin. You can go to like Tractor Supply or uh, that's the main place you can buy that stuff, but they have several livestock grooming polishes that we use for the hair, and it's got a little bit of silicone in it, and it's, it acts as a dust repellent. It acts as a little bit of a sheen, and that's the best way to keep them clean. The other thing is that you got to worry about is moths. They have a it's actually kind of like a, a grain moth or a, a cub, cupboard moth that gets in your your flower and in your pantries. And you see that more and more. The, the, the moths that eat wool, like even eat, eat up a wool sweater. So always take your mouse down, even if it's a couple times a year, and check for what you, the sign that you'll see is on the back side of the mount where it's up against the wall. You'll see little things that look like little pieces of rice, and that is the shell of one of the stages. They go through three life stages. That's the shell of one of the stages of when they hatch, they come out of that shell, and then they start eating the protein. And it doesn't matter how the hair is, how the hide is tanned, and there's several different tans out there, there's always just enough protein left at the hair root for these moths to consume, and they start on the back where it's dark. And then if you let it go long enough, they'll consume towards the head and start consuming the, 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 the root hair, uh, and then your hair just starts falling out. And it doesn't matter how it's tanned. If you have moths in your house or wherever you're keeping your mounts, you're going to have start having problems with your mounts. What you need to do in that case is get these bug bombs. Everybody that has mounts should do this. Do it twice, do it once, and then do it six weeks later. And it's a, it's a bug. It's a, you have to get a bug bomb that has the active ingredient of perithian, which is known one of the only known moth killers. They used to put arsenic in the tanning process, and that was the only guaranteed known moth proofer. But 1998, because it was such a carcinogen, in the known carcinogen, they outlawed it. So none of the tanneries were able to use arsenic, and they've not come up with another total foolproof moth-proofing system since then. So the biggest thing is for the hunter to just to keep on top of it, to make sure they don't see these signs of these little moths. And if they do, take the mounts down, put them in a, a contained area or even a big garbage bag, spray it with this this bug bomb or even home defense. Um, you can use. I soak them in a moth proofer when they get rehydrated, but that lasts only so long, you know, because of this arsenic being illegal. So always keep track of that and keep your mounts clean, even if you just do them, you know, once every six months. You can never overclean a mount, but as much time and effort as, as you put and passion into uh, harvesting one of these animals and then the money you put into having it properly mounted, you know, you take pride in it for the rest of your life. You, it just It's really worth cleaning them with what I mentioned, even if you just do it uh, a couple times a year, you know. Is is there any part of the, you know, as I'm thinking about, you know, cleaning down my mounts and stuff, I always worry about messing something up on the face, the whiskers or the nose, the eyes, and I'm always afraid to touch some of that stuff. Yep. You know, do you need to be especially careful when trying to clean that area, uh, or is it, you know, am I over, am I getting over-concerned? No, it's not as fragile as you really think. I mean, the antlers are always set in really good. You don't have to worry about those coming loose. The whiskers are set in. They're part of the tanning process. Um, I don't think they're, they're not as fragile as you might think. You can dust off the nose, and you can take a dry Kleenex and dust off the glass eyes. Um, it, I think the biggest thing is when you handle a mount, you see people getting their hands into the neck or the, the, the shoulder, and they trying to hang the mount back up, and they, they mess the hair up or they make the hair go the wrong way, and then they're afraid to, to try to comb that back down. 
but you can take anything. You can take a, a, a brush, even your hand, even a little spit on your hand, and you can wipe that back down because it's not going to not gonna hurt anything, but it looks really bad when you see all these finger marks in the hair from, you know what I mean, from moving the deer around, trying to take it off the wall and put it back on the wall. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you, they're a lot tougher, I think, than a lot of people think. You get them on the wall and they're afraid to touch them, but if you dust off the nose and dust off the eyes and take it, you can actually dust the whole animal if it's not hanging too high right on the wall, you know, so, or you can take them down and do it too. So, yeah, you just shouldn't have to worry about things like that, like with the nose and the whiskers and that, Mark. That's good to know. Now, here's yep. another one that I've heard from some people is direct sunlight. Do I, do you need to worry about having your mounts in a place that they're going to get a ton of sun? Will it, will it fade them in any kind of way? It sure will. I've seen I've seen black bears that are half blonde and half black that have sat in front of a window or in front of a sliding glass door. Um, the UV rays from sunlight is one of the worst things on a mount. For a deer, it's going to take longer. But if you the same thing with a um, like a fireplace, you don't really want to put a mount like directly over where it's really going to change the temperature. You know, right over a fireplace where the heat comes off, you might change the the temperature 30 degrees right there. And you can have a mount near a fireplace, off to one side, but right directly above it and low is a bad thing. And also, right in front of a um, a window, like you were talking about, the you know, on the south side of a house or something, where you get a lot of direct sunlight, you can see the fading that happens. Smoke is the other thing. Cigarette smoke is not good for them either. But yeah, direct sunlight's not something that you really, it's not good for any mount. Yeah. It, Better it, quit it, smoking, Mark. <laughs> good, good thing it's not a problem for me. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> um, man, this is this has been some interesting stuff. Um, I've got one more question for you, Dan, that's not okay. taxidermy related, but yep. but Dallas, Dan Johnson over there, do you have any final taxidermy questions or something that you're thinking of that hunters have been curious about when it comes to taxidermy that we haven't covered yet for Dan? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously having a shoulder mount is not cheap for the for some guys, all right? Yep. Um, so I have two deer that are Euro mounted. Um, how much... What, what goes into that? What do you need to do? I mean, that's there's a little bit less maintenance and less care needed before they bring them to you. How, how do you do that? You mean, how do I go about doing the process of European mounting a deer skull? Yeah. Okay, yeah. You know, the best thing for that, if you're going to have one of those done, a lot of people think, well, I'm not going to shoulder mount. So, they'll, again, they'll let it sit for three or four months or three or four weeks and then it rots and then they bring it to you rotten rotten with still the skin and the flesh and all the tissue still attached that is okay to a certain point but what happens the longer it sits like that is it rots the bone will actually absorb that that blood even though it's been that way since you know the, the entire time the animal is living it's it doesn't absorb the blood until it's dead and then it starts absorbing that blood and then what happens is no matter how good of a job your taxidermist does on Cleaning the, cleaning the skull off and then bleaching it, and not actually bleaching it, but peroxiding it and getting it whitened and degreased. Sometimes, depending on how it's taken care of, you can have a little bit of a yellow staining. So it's always best to, even if you're just going to European mount the animal, put it in the freezer until you take it to the taxidermist. And what I do is I actually put them in a brine. I skin them off, clean as much of the tissue off as I can, take the bottom jaw off, and then I put them in a brine, and then I heat them up. I don't actually boil them. I heat them up, and then I use a power washer, and that's how I do it. I power wash them, and then I have a degreaser, and then I have a whitener that goes on them, and then I put a polyacrylic flat seal over the, the, the uh, European mount when it's all dry, and what that does is it keeps it from 
like I said, if you have it in a spot where it has direct sunlight or people smoke or people touch it, the dust, anything, the bone is so porous that it can seep, seep into that bone. So if you put the seal on it when it's all done, that actually keeps the bone. It's not a white seal. It's just a clear, flat seal that protects that bone, the skull, from you know being having fingerprints or getting uh, dust that, that soaks into it and keeps it from yellowing over the years. So that's how we go about it. Is, is that something, and I know this is, um, you know, of course, you know, it's going to be done better by a professional like you, and if you can do it, that's a great way to do it. But if, if someone doesn't have the means to get a deer professionally mounted with their shoulder mount or a Euro mount, is, is a Euro mount feasible as a DIY type of thing? Can the average Joe get the information to actually pull it off and look good, or is it, does it turn out pretty tacky if you try that? No, I've seen everything. I've seen guys that have brought me Euro mounts that other tax firms have done, and you can't imagine that they paid to have it done. It's that bad. But then you see <laughs> guys that do it on their own, and they do a really good job. So I think it all comes to doing your research ahead of time and you know knowing what to expect when you run into certain problems. But I think the biggest thing that gets that they do wrong is number one, let them rot. That's a bad thing for them. It makes the bone um, fragile and it stains it. The other thing is, is people, if they do cook them, they overcook them. And then you get the loose teeth and you lose all the detail up in the, the nasal cavity. And then the, the rostrum bones start loosening up. And You know what I'm saying? So overheating them is a bad thing and letting them rot is a bad thing. But, yeah, a lot of guys, that's one of the things a lot of hunters take pride in is trying to Euro, Euro, Euro mount or uh, skull mount their own animals. And I've seen them do a, you know, really good jobs on them and like i said i've seen some that you know what i'm saying looks like they found it in the woods (laughs) (laughs) you see this with any kind of mount you see both extremes of it but that's definitely something a lot of the hunters will try to do themselves and take pride in and i think you know doing it yourself like that you do take pride in the fact that no matter how it turns out you did it yourself you know um i think that's more so than trying to do a shoulder mount uh, on your own yeah yeah that's pretty cool um, so here's the final thing I want to close this, uh, this episode with. You are one of my favorite people to just talk deer stories with. Whenever I come in, you've always got a good story to tell either someone that came in the shop or maybe you. And I know that you have a really great deer hunting story that happened to you recently, um, mm-hmm. with a couple, you know, a bow hunting encounter and thing go on and then something happened in firearm. Would you be willing to share with us the story of your buck that you killed recently? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm pretty good at telling that story now. Yeah. yeah that. Uh, yeah, are you talking, Mark, about this year, the the yeah. one that I – yep, okay. So the Tuesday before the deer season, there was a deer that we were – everybody in the neighborhood was, was on their wish list. We had velvet footage of him, and we'd been seeing him during early bow season. And I finally got a crack at him with my bow. And I thought I hit him really, really good. And we tracked three or four hundred, I think it's like 350 yards, really great blood trail. Anyway, we never, we even brought Andy Bradley in with his dog, and Dustin Hodgkin came and helped us. And we looked, and I looked for three or four more days, and I was positive I had that deer was there dead somewhere. Well, then on that Saturday before the season on the 14th, my 11 year old nephew, who shot the 169 inch buck last year, had a crack at this deer with a bow and you know how it is you might shoot it 20 deer in a row and find, get all 20 and you know have great success and, and then you have a little streak of bad luck and it doesn't turn out that way well 
Ross had shot the deer and shot him in the back hip or in the back, actually right in the ham, right underneath the tail. And we tracked it on that Saturday and we watched, we found the deer and he was out there chasing those. So now it, we see it's the same exact deer I had shot on Tuesday. So now this animal has been wounded with a bow on Tuesday and again on Saturday and he's still chasing those. Looks no worse for the wear. That's and crazy. then on opening day of gun season, I took my daughter, my eight-year-old daughter with me in the morning. We sat till noon, didn't see a deer, and then had a couple customers show up. And then when they left that afternoon, my daughter Georgia, my 11-year-old, and myself went out. And I was hoping to see just a good buck for her. And we look out and we spot this big 10-point. And it happens to be the one that me and uh, my nephew had both had tracks at with a bow. So we were trying to, I'm trying to settle myself down uh, to get Georgia on the shot with this deer, and she was determined she's not going to shoot because I don't know what I don't know why, but she wouldn't take the gun and take a shot at it. So for about two hours, we're waiting for the sun to go down behind the the, the, uh, the horizon because it was right in our eyes. We couldn't see the deer in the scope, and I finally decide well, she's not going to shoot. I'm going to shoot, and I shoot, and my gun jams, and I have to. <laughs> slam the gun down on the, the base of the stand to make the shell come out, and I shoot again, and the sun's in my eyes, so I look at Georgia, and anyway, Mark, I ended up, it took, uh, I, I grabbed her muzzleloader, because she won't shoot her muzzleloader, I'm out of shells now, I shoot again, <laughs> I miss a fourth time, now I'm losing my confidence, she's shaking, shivering so bad, which is making, <laughs> you know, you think you're such a seasoned hunter, and uh, it's amazing what the, uh, when things start going wrong, how you fall apart. And then one, I found one last shell in my pocket. I stood up, and I was begging Georgia to shoot. She wouldn't, and I took one last shot at it and dropped it, and Dustin came over that night and helped me find it. And sure enough, it was at the, at the time, I wasn't sure it was the same deer, but then when we seen where the arrow, two arrow wounds were, we realized it was the same deer. So it was a good close to the story, and it was neat, too, because... Dustin came out with his wife and their two kids, and we had all of our kids, and we're out in basically muskrat habitat, somewhere you'd find muskrats <laughs> but not deer, looking for this deer. And Dustin's looking at me like I'm out of my mind, and we're trying to pull Olivia out of the swamp. Sure, boots are stuck in the swamp. She's got her six-month-old baby in her little your carry, you know, carry sling, and I'm thinking this is just a bunch of crazy, this crazy family here doing helping to get this deer out of here, but. Uh, it was a, it's a, something all of us will remember for sure. Oh yeah, well that's a, that's a heck of a story and a picture proof or a perfect example of perseverance paying off. I mean, <laughs> sticking <laughs> with it. I remember when you told me about the bow hunting incident where you got the shot and and you were so determined to find that deer and you, you were you know I remember talking to you and you were just so dead set in the fact that. The shot was good. You had to find him, and you kept on going in there, searching, searching. And I, you know, it's it's great to hear someone keep putting in that effort to find that deer and, and keep doing everything they possibly can to find it. And and lo and behold, he somehow survived another shot. And then in the end, you ended up getting uh, getting the shot yeah. with your gun with your daughter. That's that's pretty awesome. It is. There was a couple sleepless nights there for sure. You just uh, you know how it is. I think we've all. I've heard you on some of your podcasts talk about. Um, you know, you, as a hunter, you have to be able to accept that part of it of maybe wounding a deer. And, you know, you put all your effort, so much effort into it. And, you know, you just, it's, it's a tough thing you have to accept. And I'm glad the way this turned out, but, uh, you know, it doesn't always turn out that way. So, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the truth. We've, we've all been there. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so Dan, this is, this has been great. I've really enjoyed this chat and, um, 
I guess the only final thing I have to ask you is if there's anyone listening now who's got a buck they want some help with, how can they get a hold of you if they're in the Michigan area or anywhere around here? I'm not sure how far you you know, you know work with people, but if yep. someone wants to learn more about you and Nature's Pride Taxidermy, how can they learn more? Um, we have a Facebook page. It's Nature's Pride Facebook. You can follow us on that. Um, naturespride.net is our website. And then we also have a phone number. Um, if that's something you want me to, 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 you can look up and I don't, I think the phone number would be on the, the website too of naturespride.net. Um, so those are the two main ways to get a hold of us. You can email us through the, the naturespride.net and through Facebook. So perfect. All right. Well, we will, uh, we'll include those links on wired to hunt. Uh, so if people want to check that out, they can. Okay, uh, great. Thanks Mark. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's going to do it for us, Dan. Thank you so much for joining us, sharing your insight. Uh, you know, as a taxidermist, it's, it's something that we all, a lot of us hopefully hope to deal with. We hope to be able to work with a taxidermist, but we never necessarily know what we're getting into beforehand unless you have a lot of experience. So I think, yep. I think you've been able to help a lot of people here today, Dan. So, so good, thank you so good. much. Well, thank you, Mark. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. And good talking to you, Dan, too. Yep. Thanks for uh, coming on the show. Yep, yeah, for absolutely. sure. All right, we'll have a good one, and good luck with the rest of the season, Dan. You too, guys. Thank you very much. All right, bye-bye. All right, goodbye. All right, so there you have it. Another episode is in the books. And before we do wrap this whole thing up, though, I do want to make a couple quick updates. First, we do have that new Wired to Hunt gear available. And FYI, there were some issues with the links and kind of some tech issues on the website over the past couple weeks that have made it kind of tough to purchase some of that gear. So if you had issues with that, I apologize, but we've got it all fixed now. So if you're interested in checking out one of our new trucker hats, our flat bill, new hoodies, t-shirts, go to wiredtohunt.com slash shop to pick those up. And man, we really appreciate that. It helps keep this podcast going. So thanks in advance for doing that. Also, If you haven't yet and you'd like to, we would really appreciate a rating or review on iTunes. And finally, check out our other two podcasts, the Whitetail Q&A podcast, which is my short Q&A format show, and also Dan's new show, the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. And as we do every week, we need to pause and thank our partners who help make this show possible. So big thank you to Sika Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. By supporting those brands, you help support Wired to Hunt. So thanks in advance. And finally, most importantly, Happy Thanksgiving. I've got to say I am so, so thankful and appreciative of all of you who follow the wired to hunt podcast it absolutely means the world so thank you so much for tuning in thank you for your support have a wonderful holiday and until next time stay wired to hunt I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. 
Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.